0: Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, Attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's Attorney CPA Joe Cordell.
1: Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. Today, we're going to return to talking about something that we you probably saw in what I think was the last episode, depending on how we air these. And I think it was our last episode where we introduced you to kind of the three legs of a stool. And we talked primarily about the importance and the power of a durable power of attorney, as well as a, a health decision authority. What's this one called in Missouri?
2: Um, the healthcare power of attorney.
1: And, yeah. yeah. Okay, you can call it health power, uh, healthcare power of attorney. But the point is, it's those are two critical components to any estate plan. And we argued last time in terms of urgency, one could argue that those are probably the things you should do first. And it turns out they're most inexpensive, so that's great. Yes. Now we're going to talk about though the other leg to that stool, which. I'll argue is really the most powerful thing you can do. It may not have the urgency of the other things, but once those two things are taken care of, the durable powers of attorney, then you've got to turn to this. And we're going to talk about a trust, a revocable trust, in a way that we want this to be interesting to you and helpful to you so we know that this topic has Great potential to, to be boring. So I promise you we'll keep this as brief as we can and we'll get to the point. And, and, and if you'll hang with us, I think that you'll find that that you'll understand why trusts are talked about so much. You hear it, I suspect, in any estate planning sort of seminar you might've gone to or conversations with people, whether it's your financial plan or others, they'll often mention trust. Well, trusts are talked about a lot because they're so powerful. When you hear something that is used that commonly, you can be sure there's a reason. And and, and we're going to talk about those reasons briefly today, but we'll highlight the most important things. Uh, With us is Nina Winsor. She's the managing attorney of Tucker Allen. And she, of course, is the authority on this topic. So uh, we'll rely on Nina to sort of bring this in. Jill is, as always, uh, the voice of the viewer. Is that fair to say?
0: I think that describes me well.
1: That's what we aspire, uh, is that is that she will anticipate questions that you might be having. Um, I represent so, the people. Yes, you're the people's representative, duly elected. Right. Uh, in any case, will you go ahead and introduce this topic, Nina?
2: Absolutely, Mr. Cordell, and thank you for having me.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So uh, today we're going to talk about revocable revocable trusts. Um, re- revocable trusts are very different than something that people use to get things out of their name, so they are not to be confused with irrevocable trusts. Revocable trusts allow the greatest control for the client. Um, They are a living, breathing document that can be changed over time. And the reason that they exist is to allow an individual or a couple to delineate what they want to have happen at the passing of one or both of them, and to really gather their assets together and put a comprehensive plan in place for both their assets and for their loved ones.
1: And can we say then that if this is really nothing but an agreement in which people transfer their assets to this thing that's called a trust, and really it's to another person or an institution... And that person or institution promises to manage those assets according to the instructions that are given by the person who creates the trust.
2: Precisely. Uh, particularly, this person is called your trustee. Uh, what's kind of confusing with the trust to begin with is that at the beginning, the pe- person who starts it or the couple who who creates this trust are called a grantor, but they are also the trustee. So you are not relinquishing any control by creating this document um, because you are both the person that's creating it and the trustee. That would be the case
0: with the irrevocable trust. Correct. Okay. So it's
1: opposite. Most of the time. And I want this to kind of make sense is You have these roles, you have the, sometimes it's called incidentally a trust store, which I'm tempted to use that phrase. Uh, Grantor, of course, is the most common phrase, but sometimes you could, I, I want this to be clear to you. So I'm gonna call it trust store for a minute. So the trust store is the person that says, oh, I need to create a trust, that's you. And you say, gee, how do I do this? Well, I need somebody to whom I give the authority to run this trust according to my instructions. And that person, or entity is called a trustee. So what's happening is you're transferring these to that entity. So the way that you end up being the trustor and the trustee at the same time, the way Nina was talking about, is because when it starts out, you're wearing two hats. You're creating it, but guess what? You get to call yourself the trustee. And that's okay as long as it's a revocable trust. It doesn't matter. So you may say, well, why would I bother doing that? Because you've set things up so that the moment something happens to you, heart attack, stroke, you get hit by a bus, whatever it is, there, your document says who the successor trustee is. So you, people name a, one, two, or three people to come after them the All moment right. they can't do it. Yes. And that's triggered, that's triggered by this event. and And so that means instantaneously without a judge having to rule on it, Two weeks later and ten thousand dollars later, instead, five minutes after you've been struck, this person is legally in the position to to run things for you to do the things that otherwise you'd have to run to courthouse and get authority.
0: So I've got a question about that. So you name these successors, say three of them. Are they all in control at the same time or do you name them in or okay, I want you know Joe Smith?
1: We haven't mentioned the third person yet.
0: A third person?
1: Yeah, you mentioned a third, but we haven't mentioned a third. Okay, well.
2: Well, so depending on how many successors you want to name, if you're confident of who those people are, you just want to make sure you have plenty of options if one of them is unwilling or unable to serve. You're going back to the the co trustees or the co-agents like we talked about in the last program, and that is you can, um, for accountability purposes, you can name people to act jointly, Right. And if one of them is unwilling or unable, you can designate that the remaining one would serve. Generally, um, because everyone that you are going to appoint is usually an adult with other responsibilities, it is preferred both by financial institutions that are dealing with this trust and by the people who end up you know, having the responsibility to have one person because otherwise every step of the way you have to come to an agreement on every minute detail
0: of what is administered with this trust. So if person number one, for some reason can't do it, then they'd go to the next person that's on that list. Correct. Okay. I gotcha.
1: Now talk about this third, there's a third party to this thing called a trust and we just talked about the first two.
2: Um, As far as the Trust the, the beneficiaries beneficiaries. Yeah. yes, so the beneficiaries, as you mentioned, can be entities, normally your family, your descendants or your your uh, siblings or your friends, uh, depending on who you'd like to provide for, which we can do in any Fashion, um, or they can be entities, they can be charities. Um, so, a trust provides for both a succession plan um, and, a, and a legacy plan for your family, but it can also demonstrate your charitable intent.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, keeping this simple, so you have a trust store that's you and your spouse. You can have a joint trust if you want. Often, sometimes some attorneys do it separately, and you're more authoritative on that. Uh, some will let you do a joint, but either way, you have trust store, you have trustee, the starting out being you, but then you think about, oh, who's going to take over the moment something happens to us? Well, if it's you and your wife together, then your wife would assume the role, or if, if you're a wife, then your husband would pers- assume the role. But the point is, if both of you are in a car accident, you're both in the same car, you have this serious accident then you've identified who the next person is that immediately has authority to start taking care of your stuff according to your rules the other party about a beneficiary all we're simply saying is the law requires that if you create a trust it's got to be for the benefit of someone so otherwise why would you create it so in the in the model examples then it's you it's three different people it's you it's the trustee Uh, you you create it, then you have the trustee, then you have the beneficiary that you're doing it for, this third party. But just like we explained to you with wearing two hats, you can actually wear three. So the way it starts out, you're wearing all three hats. And you just have to imagine that circumstances change over time and and, and they they come apart so that each of these hats are worn by different people. But when you start out, you can have all three hats. Can you make that
2: more understandable? the trust is actually created for your own benefit or at least for the benefit of your spouse if you're married. Uh, so a joint revocable trust takes any assets that are held solely by you and will put them into a separate trust that is basically comes into being at your passing – for the benefit of your spouse. Now, how much there's a, you know, a pointing arrow or zigzagging around with the assets can just depend on what kind of assets you have and the degree of assets that you have. We try to make sure that we're very linear as far as the planning that we do. We don't want to overcomplicate things for someone who may have less than a million dollars in assets. But we also want to be very careful about providing a very clear-cut picture for the family and also for the IRS about where these assets are going and, and how any estate tax may be applicable.
1: So, the beneficiary will start out being you all, mm-hmm. but then um, the moment that something happens, such as you're becoming incompetent, then you change trustees, but guess what? You're still the beneficiary. Mm-hmm. So, you're wearing two hats. You're, you're still the trust to the extent that's relevant at that stage, it may not be. You're still the trustor. You uh, now you're still the beneficiary. In other words, anything it's done has to be for your benefit, except the trustees change. You can't do it anymore. You're not in a position. You're you're uh, maybe on a, on a what what's the word I'm looking for? Ventilator. Yeah. So so uh, so you have a different uh, person acting, but remember, you're still beneficiary. They can only do things uh, for your benefit and your benefit only.
0: Okay. Now, question. Can you name a successor, a trustee, can you name the attorney who created it to do that? Is that ever done or is that not a wise idea?
2: You can. There isn't. It can vary by state. Um, Whenever there's a rule created for something, even if it's in a different state, it looks, you know, it shows that it's under a little bit of scrutiny. And so generally, we don't uh, draft trusts that name our firm as a trustee it in our mind it can create a conflict of interest if it doesn't automatically do so
1: a lot of firms do i mean or some do some maybe do. more than half i suspect but but we're just being cautious right are being-
2: absolutely it's it's one of those things where if someone does not have an entity that they'd like to name uh, as far as a trust company that if they're looking to name an entity versus an individual and, and that's you know, the a financial institution to be absolutely okay Jill. so you can have uh, the the bigger question is can you name somebody who isn't a person or isn't related to you in some way as a trustee and, and there are specific provisions throughout that that trust that allow for an independent or a corporate trustee to be placed and you can have them as a last case uh, scenario where whether you know all of my children are unable or unwilling to act, they don't want the burden, they don't have the time, they're very successful, and then you can have a little bit of an impression of you know I've worked with this bank, I like I like this entity, this is where most of my accounts are, I'm going to go ahead and name that trust company.
1: And sometimes the stranger is the only one you can trust.
2: <laughs> yeah, isn't it scary? We it have... <laughs> is scary, but,
1: you know, family dynamics.
2: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and it also prevents there from being strife between siblings because if you put a hierarchy in place, unless you do it by age order, a lot of times people are miffed. Now, you won't know about it because you're no longer living. but Or if you're incapacitated, you might hear about it when you're, when you're right, not right. anymore. When,
1: when the, uh, the corpus, that's the, the contents <laughs> of the trust, are used. Up in litigation. Now, yes. let me hurry to add, the reason we do trust is the probability of litigation is much lower than the probability of litigation in a will. So so actually the strong point with a trust is that is that you're far less likely to end up in disputes like this, but you do want to to not invite a disagreement. So your your point's well taken. And when you when you talk about an institution, you mean like, for example, there are trust departments that a lot of banks yes. still have that. Well-known
2: banks and and some
0: uh, boutique banks and as well. Obviously, they get some sort of C- that's the compensation. So, compensation, yes. right? And and I'm sure it's a percentage. It is. Um.
2: It is a usually a flat amount that is charged per month. That is a, a percentage of the holdings, and then there are some additional fees on top of that. Now, when you designate that trust company, they can provide you with a list of what their terms are for purposes of trust administration. But by the time that you pass away, the way that they handle that may have changed. So if you have named a a corporate fiduciary on your trust, it's a good idea to still keep a relationship with that trust company and to get regular updates as to what they're charging and kind of look at where your finances are over time as well. Is this something that's really warranted for you? Because people get uh, a little grandiose sometimes about what they think their estate is going to look like at the end you don't want your estate uh, or the trusts that are set up under your rev- revocable trust for your children to get eaten up with fees just to tr- try to provide them that support system sure sure
1: and and um, to give you some idea that if you if you use an institutional trustee it's probably fair to say that you need to have north of a million dollars and uh, I would agree. Yeah. there There's some incidentally that it's surprising they'll reach down between a million and two million. There may be even some who do a little below that, but your percentage is going to be higher. So the amount you pay, I, I think still is a bargain. I'll just grab a percentage, say 1%. That's not unusual to hear that number. Um, I think 1%, even even between 1% and 2%, when you consider that, their duty is to invest the money, get you a good rate of return without risking losing it. You have a a battalion of professionals behind this, unlike your uh, cousin Earl. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm saying you cousin have insurance. I love it. You you have insurance if they screw up, and I suspect family members do not. So, so there are reasons that people choose a corporate absolutely trustee.
2: You can reclaim your Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. There you Um, go. (laughs) So because we we definitely have some trust administrations where even if someone has retained an an attorney, uh, to support them as far as making sure that they don't mess up, which can be done on kind of an a la carte basis, and that's kind of a hybrid between the two. You can get an attorney to support you as a trustee if you go, well, now I'm a trustee and I don't know what in the world I'm doing. Even with that, if there are other siblings. Everything's not just going to one kid as the one beneficiary of your estate. It is very difficult to prevent there from being scrutiny between the beneficiaries if the trustee is a family member.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you you want to be sure that since you took a lot of time to create these instructions for your trust, the rules that, that you've created, you know, when do you want it paid out, how much, um, all the things that you're allowed to control about the way it's paid out, you've gone to a lot of trouble to do that. You don't want somebody who may be influenced by one of your children coming to them as a relative and saying, you know, uh, just insisting. And perhaps this person feels obligated. Maybe there's other personal factors. So you get all that when you have family. Now I'm not. Don't get me wrong. Most overwhelming majority of our clients use family members. That's correct. So so I, I all things being equal of course we'd want, you know, maybe one of our children, maybe two or more of our children some people do that despite its shortcomings to be trustees. So that can be done, but you just really need to think about in your case and the personalities of your children, it you know, is someone competent to do that. It's great if you have a son who's very res- or daughter who's very responsible. And maybe as a CPA, (laughs) I mean, you know, if if you have or an engineer, somebody who's very detail oriented, you know, who's going to follow instructions that you trust. Uh, that That's great. But not everybody has that in the family.
2: And my parents do, but I am not the designated trustee of their estate plans. That's surprising. That's um, and I have, was very, very pleased about that because I have nine siblings, and I really don't want to be the point person uh, when my mother job. passes away. Yeah, so kids. They, they have blessedly um, appointed a national Trust company to handle, and I'm sure that people will consult me and say, "Hey, is this trust company handling things properly, right. or what's going on with this? You understand these documents, and we don't, but the burden is lifted off of my shoulders."
1: Right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's a good that's a good example to make is when you have a lot of kids, it can be really tough. But but oh, that the,
0: could get really complicated.
1: So. Yeah. So uh, so the trustee decision is important. Uh, but there are lots of ways to solve it, and lots of people do different things. Most use family
2: benefits and disadvantages of every every designation that you're going to make. And the most important thing is another reason why we don't download things from LegalZoom. It's important to talk through these so that we can spot all of the issues and figure out what are your priorities, what is your ideal scenario, and what types of appointments align closest with that.
1: And give an example of the power of a trust. So you can talk a little bit about its power to take care of of our client while they're alive. The trust actually, some would say the primary reason they do a trust is to take care of themselves while they're alive, to have a set of rules in place rather than just the power of attorney. So talk a little bit about that, but then talk about some of the cool stuff you can decide to do when you pass.
2: Absolutely. So while you're living, uh, your revocable trust does not need to hold your assets. It doesn't provide the same level of creditor protection of things that you're trying to get you know, out of your name. Um, so some people have the misconception that you're getting things far away from you. The revocable trust by its name allows you to put things in and out of your trust. You can transfer your primary residence into your trust. Some people are hesitant to do that. You don't have to. You can put something together that's called a beneficiary deed, um, similar to the beneficiary beneficiary designations on your accounts, it allows you to trigger the transfer of these assets into your trust immediately upon your
1: passing. No courts involved. No courts involved. But you can
2: put these assets into it. You can. uh, During your lifetime, you can have them in an account that's in the name of your trust, but it's not necessary. Previously, a lot of attorneys would transfer everything right up front into this trust. And and all of your accounts had your trust name on them, which, you know, it can make you feel really important, but it's not necessarily uh, something that you have to do. So by that, it also makes it more accessible, makes it makes people understand that like they everything looks the same as it did the day before you walked into your attorney's office. The difference is that everything is very, very carefully buttoned up, that nothing's going to happen to any of those accounts where they end up in limbo and that you have the greatest level of control. You have a first plan, a second plan. You have all these contingency plans that are clearly in these documents so that you're not just saying everything goes to Susie. Well, if Susie happens to be on disability when you pass away and you've just kicked her off of her benefits with a very minimal amount of money. So, it's allowing you to have these
0: plans that are working and can be changed at any time. What if the client is involved in a lawsuit while they're alive and and they they have this revocable trust? Is it more vulnerable? Absolutely.
1: Uh, but it wouldn't be. Well, uh, well, wait.
0: Than
2: personally holding the assets?
1: Let me let me though add add a qualification though. This is something that is not automatic in in trust law. When you do a revocable trust, you, normally your primary consideration isn't what we call asset protection while you're alive. Usually, you're wanting your primary eyes on having everything in place so that if you become incompetent, somebody right. can manage your assets and then but but even more importantly to most of our clients is that when they pass away, that they can do some really cool stuff, they can be very specific about when stuff's paid out how much is paid out to who. They have all that wonderful control rather than dumping it in their children's laps, uh, which often is a mistake we know as as mm-hmm. lawyers. And you can do it without going through probate. You know, it, it's instantaneous, no judge, no court. It's just in, incredibly better than the alternative, which is probate, and, yes. and which consumes a lot of, a tr- of the money that you would otherwise leave. Um, but, and I'll get your thoughts on this, Nina. Um, if it's, if it's written to where, when you become incompetent, um, then it's irrevocable at that stage. It's still a grantor trust. Yes. But Missouri does allow certain protection to grantor trust, do they not? If you name somebody else who's also a beneficiary, meaning not, you, you can still be a beneficiary, but I think someone else be. this As is, trustee at that time.
2: Yes, there are points, and this is, oh gosh, we could spend a whole other day on this, um, on talking about what point do you want your trust to become irrevocable. So we're starting out telling you, you have all this control with your revocable trust, but one of the controls that you have is selecting when the trust becomes irrevocable, and that's when you start to talk about asset protection.
1: Yeah, so this is a little esoteric. We won't go very far down this road. It's kind of cutting edge because Missouri hasn't had many cases go to the to the court of appeals regarding its asset protection law. But Missouri actually has a—it's not the best asset protection laws, but it's it's definitely. I've seen it listed in the top ten. You hear Alaska being discussed. Wyoming, I think, is another state. Um, Delaware. Uh, but actually, Missouri you know allows you to have reasonably good protection of your assets. That means f- from lawsuits from creditors, et cetera. But that's a different conversation. It's not the primary thing people do when, they, when they, they plan for asset protection for their children. So let me be clear, we can give your children that. As a matter of fact, that's really the coolest mm-hmm. thing in my opinion. <laughs> think about my kids. But one of the one of the things that I get satisfaction with with my daughters is I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to insulate them from being sued successfully, whether it's you know malpractice, heaven forbid, uh, whether you know whatever it is they could that they could possibly be sued for. These assets are protected. That we we will give you uh, with a revocable trust. What's tougher is to give it to you, meaning for you while you're alive. That's a little tougher. And that's what Nina was referring to where that, that requires a conversation if that's a goal because it does mean okay. you have to try to make it irrevocable at some point while you're alive. It could be when you become incompetent, but it um, that's a different conversation. Talk more about what are the reasons somebody should want to fool with a doing a revocable trust.
2: Versus a will.
1: Versus a will, yeah. Okay.
2: So in a will, you're setting out you know, all of the different provisions, which can be very specific, and it sounds great, but your goal, actually, even when you're doing a will, is to make sure that none of that stuff still ends up in probate because you're trying to put in beneficiary designations on your accounts. So people are like, okay, well, I want this will to have all of these things and everybody gets all these specific gifts of money. The goal is that none of that money ever hits the will because that means you are in a full blown probate. So what a revocable trust allows you to do is you can have as many specific provisions as you want. You can set up specific things that have to do with your real estate. You can set up things that have to do with individual family members and needs that you know that they may have. And you can you can provide for your grandchildren in a certain way, but you can also make it so that the access to those funds don't end up in an account that requires a court to uh, approve a distribution for a minor or an incapacitated person, or even just somebody that you don't want your grandkids getting money when they turn 18. I mean, I have a, a daughter who's going to be eighteen in two years and I definitely wouldn't want her getting a lump sum of cash. And I think <laughs> she's actually pretty intelligent. But, and,
1: you know. Yeah, I'm just it is. It's a mistake. And and I think that people don't think this through. My daughters who who I think have good judgment and and yet do I want them to have all their assets at one time, even if they're thirty? I don't think so. Now, maybe if it were very little money, but I'm not assuming that 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 we're talking about a ton of money here. I'm, I'm assuming that we're just talking about a substantial amount. There's so many ways for that to go wrong if you give it to them all at once. Number one, they end up with a divorce. Right. Guess who's going to end up with half of that money in Absolute all likelihood. The
2: some, now, you can silo money that is in considered a, an inheritance. And I have talked to exactly zero people who have done that appropriately and opening up a separate account and keeping the money there away from, you know, any joint accounts with their spouses and and really keeping tabs on money that goes in and out of there so that you're not commingling those funds so that if you ever do get a divorce, it's not considered uh, an asset, a marital asset. So these, what are called lifetime trusts or separate trusts that you can set up for your children, they have... A couple of things that you can decide about them. They can be trustees of their own lifetime trust at a certain point, but that doesn't give them that control that allows creditors or divorce to access the money.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Imagine what an incredible benefit it is to say you're you're leaving $200,000 to each of your kids and you have two or three kids, we'll say. Imagine the gift you've given them, if you give it to them in an irrevocable trust, uh, that might, you, you can give it liberal terms to where there's reasonable access mm-hmm. to them. So it's not as if, you know, you're trying to necessarily withhold it from them. You're trying to give them a better gift than they could give themselves. And that means that you've given them protection from divorce, from a car accident in which they're sued, uh, right. a bankruptcy... Um, in which they start a business. I mean, your kids could have wonderful judgment, and lots of very smart people still have a bankruptcy during the course of their business career. That's correct. It doesn't mean, incidentally, that they're not failures. Many of them become hugely successful. Life Mm -hmm. happens. But but the point is, if that money is not inside something like this irrevocable trust that you've given your children, then it's gone. And and that's the wonderful thing that you can give them by using a trust and, and it becomes irrevocable in their hands, meaning they can't turn around and just revoke it, which means that they have protection.
2: That's correct. And you can pick any age that you think that a kid should have. Uh, become a co-trustee with your trustees that you've designated and kind of get a training wheels program of like, what is a trust and how does it work? What is a health education maintenance and support standard of what you're allowed to take that money out for? Does that include keggers in grad school? No, it doesn't, (laughs) you know, things like that. And you can really get an idea of how to responsibly manage those assets. And don't forget that this is something that when you finally have this trust created for you, it means it's happening on the death, usually of a parent, maybe sometimes of a grandparent. And that is a very sad time, not the best time to give a lump sum to a young adult, regardless of their age, if it's under, you know, 25 to 30. It's a very difficult time where people can kind of rationalize choices that they might not otherwise make. So allowing them to have a little bit of a stopgap provision between them and what they're choosing to spend this money on
0: allows the money to go a lot further and it allows it to be invested. So say we're talking, you know, $200,000, the number you mentioned. Can you say, okay, a year after my death, I want my child to get 50000 of it and then the rest of it distributed over time? You can, can you set it up that way?
2: You can have an annual right of withdrawal. Um, Again, we're talking about a revocable trust with control, lots of control, lots of ability to dictate how you want things to go. Remember, though, that if you have this annual unqualified right of withdrawal or an automatic distribution, that automatic distribution is now considered an asset that they have access to. So if they do have a creditor or there is a divorce, that asset they are guaranteed to take out may come into play. For yeah.
1: That. Yeah, and that's an important point is you it will a good attorney will write this in such a way that you you give your trustee discretion over when and what to pay out to your children. Now, you can still tell them what you would like to see paid out, but as long as there's ultimate there's ultimately the right to say no on the part of the trustee, then that means that it you do have this asset protection I was describing a few moments ago. But if you have an instruction that says the trustee shall pay out ten thousand dollars per month or whatever it is, if you if you write it that way, it's probably a mistake because it means, yeah, it will be paid out, but it also means that a judgment could be obtained that would claim that. So you want to be sure and and listen to your lawyers as how to write this so that you give you give this gift, your money to these children in a way that is just hugely more beneficial to them, more helpful to them than just putting it in their lap, you know, after you pass away.
2: It's a disaster preparedness plan for you and your spouse, but it's also one that you can go so far as to help prepare for your children. And what an empowering thing that is because it's so nerve-wracking to have your children, you know, leaving your home and you want them to do well and you want to provide them support and you want to see them make good choices. But you also know from your own experience as an adult that things are going to happen that are unexpected. And so anything you can do to stand in the gap um, and provide protections for what you're trying to leave for your children is an enormous benefit.
1: Those are great words to close with. That kind of sums up kind of much of what we said. Good job, Nina. Yes, Um, so next time what we'll do is we will talk a little bit more about what assets you want to put in a trust if you create it versus those you don't and compare that to the probate process if you were to say, "Uh, I don't want to fool with a revocable trust, I just want to use a will. So we'll talk about what those differences are and and a little bit about the probate process next time. be sure and hit the like and subscribe button. We really count on that. You guys know how this works. I mean, if we don't get the likes and subscribes, then not many people get to see this video. So it, we, we really work hard to make this valuable. We hope we don't waste your time. And, and we just ask you for that like and subscribe. So until uh, next time, this has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till then, take care.
0: You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.